Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark, and I'm joined by two of our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, and Damon Linker of the Week. Sitting in for Linda Chavez this week, we're delighted to have Jonathan V. Last, editor of the Bulwark, and our special guest this week is Catherine Rampell, columnist for the Washington Post. As we speak, the House is debating impeachment 2.0. Uh, JVL, I'd like to start with you uh, because the thing that got us here um, is something you outlined in your newsletter today, and you called it the biggest lie. So can you just amplify on that for a minute? Yeah. What, what, the, the, the fundamental problem we have is that we've got something akin to polonium poisoning of our political groundwater. And that is the insistence by the President of the United States and more than half of the Republican congressional delegation that the election was fraudulent, uh, that Donald Trump was the true winner of the election, and that the incoming President of the United States is literally illegitimate, is, is the product of a bloodless junta. And if, if one takes those things seriously, then people should be in a state of open revolt and revolution, should they not, right? I mean, it would mean that American democracy has fallen mm -hmm. and that we are in a state of authoritarian authoritarianism. And so this is, you know, I, I just don't see any way for anything to get better until this big lie is repudiated by the Republican Party in such a manner that their constituents believe it, you know, or I should say believe the repudiation is, is what I'm trying to say. And it, so what I look at, the, you know, it is not enough for uh, Kevin McCarthy to, as he did a few minutes ago, say Joe Biden will be president because he won the election. Like this is that. No, I'm sorry. That's not good enough. You spent the last two months saying the election was stolen, that Donald Trump was the real winner. Yeah. The standard for how much, you know, people say, well, how much more, how much do you want them to apologize? How much is enough? The answer is they, they need to do it until the Republic, the polling on Republicans who think that Trump was the legitimate winner of the election drops to about, you know, 10 percent. That's when we will know that the Republican Party has done enough. <laughs> There's an old story about a man who um, is telling lies about his rabbi and he um he feels guilty, and he finally goes to the rabbi and says, look, rabbi, I, I realize I've told a lot of falsehoods about you, and I'm sorry. I hope you'll forgive me. And the rabbi says, I will, um, but first I want you to do something for me. And he says, of course, anything you say. So he says, all right, take your feather pillow, go up to the top of that hill, and shake it out. Guy says, well, that's weird, but okay, fine. So he goes, he, he does that, reports back. Now will you forgive me? He says, I will after you pick up each of those feathers, because that's what your lies have done. They've spread everywhere. Now, for the Republican Party to reverse the damage is going to be a huge undertaking, because as you say, they have been participating. I mean, it isn't just Trump. It, it, it could never have gotten to this point. We, our democracy could never have been endangered just by one man being a titanic liar. It required the cooperation of an entire ecosystem, an entire party that repeated his lies and that said, you know, I mean, we are all pro-McConnell now, but it was McConnell who said, you know, well, the president's entitled to pursue his uh, legal remedies and so on and so forth, thereby granting legitimacy to the, uh, the idea that there was some sort of fraud to be investigated. Speak for yourself, um, Mona, on being pro McConnell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. So, Catherine, uh, first of all, thanks for joining us. Great to great to have My you. Um, you um, you wrote a column recently um, saying that uh, that President Trump has just never paid a price for anything, and that's one of the reasons to pursue this impeachment now, right? Yeah. People keep saying, people, lawmakers, Republican lawmakers keep saying some version of, well, Trump has learned his lesson. 
Roy Blunt made this comment last Sunday where he said, oh, Trump touched the stove, touched the hot stove, and he's unlikely to do it again. Um, uh, I don't know what unlikely means. You know, what are the chances that he'll again try to foment a civil war? 10%, 20%, what's a tolerable level of uh, probability for that for lawmakers? Uh, I'd love to know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it wasn't just Blunt. You know, a year ago, we heard basically the same argument from Susan Collins, where she said some version of Trump has learned his lesson, therefore I should acquit him um, in the impeachment trial. Uh, no need to, to, to convict him, no need to eject him from office. He's learned his lesson. But the only lesson that Trump has ever learned, both from the Confederates who are, um, you know, uh, aiding and abetting him in Congress and in the White House and elsewhere and also in his private life, pre-politics has been, if you're a star, they let you do it, right? Like we mm -hmm. heard in the Access Hollywood tape, there are never any consequences for anything. So, of course, he's going to become emboldened. And and I think the issue this time around is not so much, well, we we need to impeach him because then he'll learn his lesson and won't do something bad. It's that it's be you know he's he's going to be gone in a, in a few days anyway. It's not that we're worried about him doing well. I hope not. It's not that we're worried about him um, you know trying to stage a coup once he's out of office a year from now. It's it's more that he he has become emboldened and if he is not taken out of office, he will do something bad imminently. Daryl Issa made some comment today during um, the debate where he said something to the effect of, well, um, you know, Trump is not a clear and present danger with so little time remaining in his term, except it's the opposite, right? I mean, in, if you've ever taken a game theory course, you know that when there's no tomorrow, that's, the, that's when you have the biggest incentive to defect. <laughs> that when you have nothing to lose, that's when you're the most dangerous. So he never learned his, he never learned his lessons before, and he certainly hasn't learned it now. And if anything, he has a greater incentive than ever to do something really bad because he knows he's going to be out soon. So all of those reasons suggest he, he needs to be removed from power immediately and needs to have the nuclear codes taken away from him immediately. Bill, last week you were um, skeptical of that argument. Do, do you feel differently now? Uh, I, I wrote... My weekly column posted last night in the print edition this morning, uh, dealing with that very question. And I two points. First of all, I I came out in a place uh, like Jonathan uh, that the most important job the Republican Party has to do, no matter how long it takes, is to persuade as many. Uh, supporters uh, as they can uh, that uh, you know that this is in fact a big lie uh, that the election was fairly and freely conducted that Joe Biden is the legitimate president of the United States uh, that is the that is the sickness that's polluting the body politic at this point and it frankly it's less about Trump and more about the tens of millions of people who have responded so positively to him and are willing to believe just about anything he says. Now, this task that Jonathan and I, Jonathan and I agree on is not going to be quick or easy because the surveys that I've seen suggest that a majority of people who support Trump see themselves as Trumpists, but not necessarily as Republicans. And if they are forced to choose between Trump the messenger and their state and local elected official as messengers, most of them will choose Trump. And, you know, as rhetoricians have known going back to classical antiquity, uh, if the messenger is not seen as trustworthy, the communication is unlikely to be persuasive. So there is a very deep problem here. And analytically, the question that exercises me is, why are so many tens of millions of Americans predisposed to believe this kind of message? Until we get to the bottom of that, I think we're going to have a very tough time as a country. 
With regard to the specific question of impeachment and removal, uh, I, I came out in a different place uh, because of you know, my analysis of what the long-term good of the country requires. Uh, uh, and you know, the, the template of my analysis is that the accountability frame for analyzing these events points in one direction and the future common good for analyzing these events and what we should do now points in a very different direction. Uh, it's a complicated argument and uh, a lot of it rests on uh, my question, what would Abraham Lincoln do in these circumstances? And I concluded that he would not come out in favor of impeachment and removal. Uh, he was a wise leader and uh, that's always a big gun to pull out, the Lincoln one. Um, Damon, uh, let's let's discuss accountability a little further, but also if you wouldn't mind getting into a little bit of analysis of what you think is going through the mind, obviously none of us can know, of Mitch McConnell, who um, last night said something, yesterday afternoon said something really arresting that he was, you know, he leaked, but obviously intended to leak, that he was pleased that they were impeaching Trump and that he felt that the, this would help purge the Republican Party of Trump and Trumpism. Uh, but this morning, um, he has said that uh, he has, he will not, you know, the, the Senate is in recess. It's subject only to his recall. Uh, he, Schumer doesn't become the majority leader until January 20th, if then. It depends on whether the Senate convenes. Um, and so what, what do you think that accomplishes, saying, well, I welcome this, but then not scheduling it, not, not bringing the Senate back? Well, I don't know exactly. I always presume, though, with McConnell that it has to do with some kind of a Machiavellian calculation. And they're like, because of the complication of the impeachment process, well, first you have a vote in one house to impeach or not. And then when if that's a yes, then it moves to the Senate and then you have a trial where there's a separate vote with a higher threshold. That create, and then, of course, all the Senate rules that give McConnell, at least for now, a lot of power over whether and when that actual trial leading to a vote will take place. That's a very complicated game-theoretic game set of, of, uh, of scenarios. And I think what we saw from him saying on Tuesday that he was, in effect, sick of Trump, ready to uh, permit uh, an actual impeachment trial to take place in the Senate because he thought that it would make it easier for the party to move beyond Trump. That I see as him recognizing the way the winds are blowing and the fact that, yes, last week was appalling. It, it really scared the crap probably out of him and his caucus and his whole party. He sees the public opinion on it where uh, even Trump's approval is now down into the low 30s for the first time ever, uh, as well as other polling showing something like 80% of the country thinking that this was uh, was a mistake, uh, that Trump, you know, uh, incited this crowd to do that last week. Um, so I think he's, he's decided, all right, I can be in the camp of letting this go forward. But, of course, he did not say he would vote to remove him or convict him because that's a that's a different a whole different calculus and given his background and his machiavellian instincts he's not going to commit to that till he sees how the vote is going to go um so you know i wouldn't expect him to come out and announce anything like that but it is distressing that today he's now announced that he's not going to let the trial start until after Biden is in office. That, that is unfortunate. I do not know the answer to the question of precisely. This is the kind of thing I would definitely look to Bill to answer as a kind of institutionalist who knows more about these rules than I do. I don't know what the point of impeaching a president is when he has already left office other than adding on 
the stricture that he may never run for office again. But that could be achieved by a separate vote of its own that I believe would would require a lower threshold, a simple majority vote. Simple majority in both houses. Yeah. Bill, you wanted to weigh in on that? I think that is not correct. Okay. Okay. Uh, I I reviewed the constitutional language and a bit of the history last night, and here's here's the way I construe it. Think of it on the analogy of a trial where the, uh, the, the House, in effect, serves as the grand jury, bringing the indictment. The Senate serves both as the jury, uh, you know, determining you know, guilt or, or absence of guilt, and as the judge handing down the sentence. One possible constitutional sentence, other than removal from office, is you know it is the permanent ban from her holding offices of public trust or profit uh, under the Constitution. But in the same way that you can't sentence someone unless you convict him. No, I think that Damon and I were referring to this supposed Fourteenth Amendment option, where well, that, anyone who yeah. That wasn't what I heard. Oh, yeah, that's what, yeah. I, I I have conflated those two things again. That's why I was deferring to Bill. Yeah, for as far as I'm concerned, you've answered the question. That oh, okay. will explain why we need, would maybe need to go through what will look far more. I'm afraid. I mean, I I think that now if you assume that McConnell's not going to back down on this and we're not going to get a trial until Biden is president and Chuck Schumer's taken over as majority leader. Then we have the situation where they're going to have to decide, will they hold it immediately, which will then gum up not only like Senate, the Senate calendar and therefore potentially really slow down a lot of cabinet appointment uh, hearings and so forth, but, but as far as soaking up all the oxygen in the room in the media for weeks – the idea that the first two weeks of the Biden administration is going to be devoted to a trial of Donald Trump is is not politically great, in my view. Uh, and then the other option would be to follow what some people like Jim Clyburn have suggested, which is do it like three months from now. But then it will really just look like a stunt uh, that has no connection to what's actually happening then, potentially at least. So I, it's really it's – a, it's a bit of a mess. I yeah. Think. Catherine, well, but, can I bring – Sorry, the, go ahead, Bill. Just one, one last institutional point. The mess is even messier uh, than the discussion up to now has suggested because all of these timing options presuppose the constitutionality of holding a Senate trial after the office holder has left office. Isn't there, there a are precedent couple, for that? There are precedents for that, but those precedents are lower level and have never been tested in the court of law. And the one that I reviewed found uh, in, in that case, uh, the person the person who had been impeached was found not guilty by the Senate. And so the, quest, the question of the validity of the exercise never came up. Uh, so we don't know the answer to that question. And if you saw the piece either today or yesterday by former Judge Michael Luttig, you know, who is a very fine conservative jurist, his reasoning was emphatically that it would not be constitutional uh, to proceed in this manner. So it is an untested question. I think that's the best way of putting it, and it would surely be tested if it came to that, there and that would, that would be even messier. There are a number of untested questions, a couple of others that, that we may be looking at in the next few weeks. One is whether, um, as I was mentioning earlier, the 14th Amendment gives a possible way to prevent Trump from returning to office uh, because the 14th Amendment has a provision that says anyone who is um, engaged in insurrection against the United States can be barred from holding office by a majority vote of both houses. That was what I was referring to, Bill, when you said that's not correct. I think you thought I was talking about impeachment. I wasn't. I was talking about the um, the 14th Amendment option, which apparently is also not much um, – there isn't much law about that. And then the, the other thing is, of course, that Trump is almost certainly going to self-pardon, and that too has never been tested in the courts. So we'll see how 
see how that plays out. I mean, as I see it, I think there are sort of three uh, three objectives that I hold, at least, and, and okay. others may disagree in terms of pursuing some sort of form of accountability, whether it's, it's through impeachment or otherwise. But one is preventing further incitement to violence by Trump himself, mm -hmm. um, which would mean getting him out of office even before the 20th. And I, I understand based on McConnell's announcement today that that seems in increasingly unlikely, but that would be objective number one. Um, objective number two would be barring him from further office, um, whether that could be done through the 14th Amendment um, or, or otherwise. Um, and objective number three would be a changing incentives for other politicians in the future who might be tempted by their own authoritarian tendencies, that you need to show that there are repercussions, right, for, for this kind of bad behavior, and not just for Trump, but for, again, all of the allies who have helped him perpetuate the big lie, and they're not all going to be impeached for obvious reasons. Um, it's not how our system is set up. But I do think that there needs to be some sort of reckoning, um, some sort of consequences that these guys face, Trump and others, whether it's getting booted from office and probably by the time the next election rolls around, Americans will have forgotten. But they need to, I, I just, I really think that they need to pay some sort of consequence <laughs> for the fact that they have, um, you know, fomented this, um, this, I don't know, del mass delusion. They've, they've fed right. this mass delusion because otherwise they'll do it again. Um, and we've seen them do it again. I feel like for, for well over a decade now, there have been uh, elements in, you know, in, in the Republican Party in in official positions who have sort of made this bargain that, well, we can we can have the crazies in the party and we can appease them and they'll help us, they'll, they'll give us votes and we can control them. Um, and that's clearly not the case. And unless they face some consequences for this alliance and for for feeding the crazies, I, I just think they're they're never gonna adjust their behavior. And, and that's really what I'm concerned about. I feel like there were so many occasions over the past few years when the Republican Party looked like it was going to face a reckoning. You know, now, like in 2016, it, it looked like finally there was going to be a reckoning that we need to, like, clean house, not have this alliance with the, the far-right media figures, who you know, the Alex Jones figures and others. Um, something more along the lines of, like, the you know, the, the purge of the birchers <laughs> decades ago, that it looked like there was finally going to be a reckoning because they were, because Republicans were going to lose elections, frankly, and that didn't happen. And, and unless there is some consequence that these politicians face, I, I just think they're never going to learn from the mistakes that they've made. JVL, you've been someone who's been hoping to purge the crazies from the party. Uh, well, not that you're a Republican, but, uh, from American life um, for quite a long time. I, I would like to get your views on some of the informal sanctions that have been applied through business leaders and others this the past week. Um, we've seen Josh Hawley lose his book contract and have some pushback from his his mentor, uh, Jack Dan, former Senator Jack Danforth, and his biggest donor and the editors of the major newspapers in his state have called for him to resign and you've had um, you've had major American corporations saying that they will no longer donate to the 147 Republicans who voted to decertify the election results um, so you're seeing some movement in civil society and in the business world among elites if you will that's not nothing right well, I mean, it's not nothing. It's a little late. Uh, yeah. We, you know, I don't know if any of you guys read Ben Thompson, who writes a really fantastic newsletter called Stratechery. And he wrote about four years ago a piece talking about how aggregation theory, which is the, one of the theories on how, how businesses become dominant in an internet world with zero marginal costs, but how what aggregation theory does with news is that it moves the power from uh, from the producers of news to the consumers of news. And so what happens is 
the type of news that people want to consume becomes the more popular news. This is this mm -hmm. is what Facebook and social media and all the all the Google News and all those algorithmically controlled sources wind up pretending. And in a world where that is what's going on, I mean that it's not a coincidence that this stuff dovetails with the rise of Donald Trump, who tells a bunch of people the things they want to hear and uh, creates space for this populism and. I don't know. I, I I have taken the unpopular view that what we need is more moderation and more banning from the big tech companies, and uh, I wish they would just sort of embrace that. But uh, no, people don't generally like to to hear that view. So no, that's, I'm so glad you said that because it's a perfect segue into our second topic, which is that the other thing that happened this week is that Trump was deplatformed from Twitter, from Facebook from other social media. Um, so uh, I I applaud that. I think he broke their rules. Uh, there should not be special rules for him. And in, beyond that, he's dangerous. Um, also, Parler was deplatformed. Again, it seems to me these are private companies. They are not public utilities. They should uh, engage in this kind of, uh, of editing and, and, and uh, gatekeeping function. Anybody disagree? Well, I don't disagree in this case. When you're dealing with incitement to an insurrection, especially an insurrection directed at reversing the results of a free and fair election, then absolutely that is what is needed. Um, I do worry quite a bit about the uh, kind of free-floating uh, instinct toward cancellation for much, much less dramatic sins, uh, moral transgressions, and the tendency of some of these companies to be persuaded to police things uh, in that area. And the, the worry, I worry that they will be emboldened by their newfound uh, resolution to ban things, to start doing it far more widely, uh, not just on the right, but in the center and the center left, and basically anyone who dissents from a certain uh, moral line. Now, in the present moment, I don't think that's what we should be spending too much time fretting about because, uh, you know, we're in a moment where the real threat is this kind of lunatic right uh, that lives in a, in a self-conjured fantasy world uh, that we were talking about earlier. And to address that, we do need to draw lines and enforce them in the way that they are being right now. But uh, for those of us who try to have pundit brains that expand beyond, you know, the immediate week to a little bit longer perspective. <laughs> I do think this is going to be a, a problem that we come back to again and again. There are people, sensible people who are, don't share my views on a lot of things, but who are smart and interesting and uh, engaged with these debates, like Rod Dreher on the right, who has written about the danger of U.S. tech companies imposing something like a social credit system like they're developing in China, where basically you either tow a woke moral line or you get blackballed. You can't use airplanes. You can't uh, post anything on any social media platform. You're basically erased from public life if you don't go along. That is something that could happen if we let it happen, and we. Well, wait a second. I mean, the, 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 the companies don't have the kind of power that the state has in China. That's preposterous. Well, I mean, in I, China, I the state say, can no. prevent you from getting on an airplane. I mean, Twitter can't revoke your, you know, your driver's license and keep you off it, United you know, Air. Not, not de jure, but de facto, uh, we live in a society that is, you know, I'm very pleased to say, American. American uh, life is has a very rich, thick civil society, and these companies exercise an unbelievable amount of power within that society. I could totally imagine a time in the future where someone who says the quote-unquote wrong thing becomes the object of scorn throughout social media, and then an airline says, 
in order to show that we're on the side of what's right here, we will not let this person on our planes. That is totally within the realm of the possible. Again, it would not be de jure. It would not be a law like it is in China. But there is a lot of de facto uh, kind of moral sorting that is possible with companies can, having this much power. I mean, it comes from the fact that American public life is now largely conducted through these media companies, and it, the, they control who gets to play ball. Now, I think they've been erring much too much on the side of a kind of morally neutral bulletin board kind of model where, like, anybody can say anything, including – you know, half the Republican Party can post that we're living in this upside-down world where the election was stolen and we should go to Washington and try to hang the vice president of the United States. That's what was going on on Parler. Um, so that, you know, that it's too far to say that's perfectly okay. Um, but we do have to be on guard toward uh, figuring out how to regulate how these companies make these very important public decisions. I, I actually um, I, I share I, I share much of this ambivalence that I, I do think companies have a responsibility to avoid contributing to violence and clearly they have the legal power to do so. I think AWS had some sort of filing today or yesterday where they said that they dropped Parler because Parler had been, you know, the, the site had been hosting threats of rape, torture, and assassination of named public officials. Um, that seems totally within the public interest to say that they should take all of that down and good for them for doing it. And as an aside, you know, Trump has railed against um, the Section 230 protections, but in fact, if, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, um, if, if in fact that liability shield were taken away from companies, they would have greater incentive to, cen to censor. Correct. <laughs> they would be held responsible uh, legally responsible for those kinds of threats. But I, I do feel a bit uneasy about how much power these several companies have over public discourse. I, I don't know what the remedy is for that, but I, I do I, – it makes me uncomfortable that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg kind of has so much say over whose speech is, is heard. Um, again, not by law, but I, there, I, I, I don't know that I, you know, quite buy the dystopian vision that airlines are going to get involved in this deplatforming game too. But I, I do think it's a problem we have to grapple with as, as someone who, you know, believes in free speech and that more speech is better than less speech. If we're talking about uncomfortable ideas as opposed to incitement to violence, I think that's a, a much grayer area, and I don't know what the what the right uh, resolution is. I mean, I so, Bill, yeah, I'm going I'm bringing you in now. Um, I just wanted to mention that uh, the story went around this week that Angela Merkel had said she was upset that uh, Trump had been deplatformed by Twitter, but actually what she said was that such decisions are too important to be left to tech CEOs. What did you want to uh, add to that? Well, uh, I am, you know, you know, I am where Catherine is on this one, you know, with worries extending out in both directions. Uh, but I do think there's a remedy that needs to be put on the table. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a you know a classic classic response to excessive concentrations of unchecked corporate power is antitrust enforcement. Uh, and we may have to consider, reconsider, and, and renovate some of our antitrust laws, but I've been arguing for years uh, that, you know, that, you know, that Facebook is the standard oil of our day. I understand the economics of network effects, et cetera, et cetera, very different. Uh, but, you know, I've been arguing for years that Borkian antitrust is dead wrong that consumer cost and efficiency are not the only variables to be considered in antitrust determinations. Uh, I think, I think if, uh, I agree with Angela Merkel that uh, these decisions shouldn't be made by a corporate CEO, but if we broke up Facebook, we wouldn't be having this discussion, or at least we wouldn't be worried nearly as much. 
but, but on the other hand, if you look at the dimension on which these competitors are competing on, it's not more moderation, <laughs> right? It's, or it's, 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 look at what Parler does, right? They, they say we do no moderation. I'm not sure that that's a better outcome either, that when you do have competitors, if they're, if the, their, um, their way in which they dif differentiate themselves is, is that they say, uh, we just allow more threats of violence. I'm not sure that's really the right, <laughs> that's right. the what best outcome either. I mean, probably you need some regulation. I don't know well, how you it might be possible to, First Amendment. It might be possible to rewrite Section 230 to encourage a bit more um, uh, mo uh, moderation by the uh, platforms so that because right now it's it's pretty broad i mean they they have pretty broad immunity um they can they can you know keep child pornography off their sites um uh, but uh but as far as threats and all the rest of it that's up to them and uh, maybe we we could tighten that a bit through the law what do you think bill uh i have uh, i have looked at this question and I'm sympathetic in principle to the idea of, of revising Section 230, but every practical proposal that I've seen to do it, you know, creates just a mare's nest of legal complications, and it would be an invitation to litigation that would never, never stop. That's, it may be the best of a bad lot of options, but I have to say, uh, in, response, in response to Catherine, uh, that uh, it is you – know, what we're now we're now in a situation where, in effect, Facebook has much a much larger reach than Fox News. I'd rather have a situation, frankly, uh, in which in which some uh, you know some uh, of these internet providers were uh, engaged in a race to the bottom, uh, like Parler. And others would have an entirely different model appealing to a very different audience. I think that would be a healthier situation uh, than a situation in which in which one company dominates the landscape the way Facebook does. I could be argued out of that, but that's my instinct. But aren't you just wishing into existence these you know these these platforms that will take the high road? I mean, you know what? They would... when, when the history suggests that when monopolies are broken up, remember AT and T. Mm. New com competitors spring up. Yeah, but not necessarily competitors. I mean, in the old days, that was a matter of providing better service at a lower price. Now we're talking about providing, you know, a more um, uh, a cleaner political hygiene environment. That's a whole different. Uh, it is, but I'd rather expectations. But suppose suppose Parler or something like that ended up with one fifth the reach that Facebook now has. That would be better than a situa the situation now where, in effect, uh, these crazy people are allowed to communicate instantly with two billion others. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, Bill. I mean, uh, look, no, nobody's sure. Nobody's sure, but we have to be. Yeah, I mean, I, it strikes me that the problem is more one of networking and that it's sort of whether you have one platform or ten platforms is sort of irrelevant, that these, these websites function by connecting people in virtual space along a kind of an opinion matrix so that – you know, if I were, say, uh, if I were a member of the Ku Klux Klan in 1920, Indiana, how much, how much bad could I do in America at that moment? It was sort of limited to the other members of the Klan in my local community, maybe my county, region of the state, maybe the state as a whole. But that's about it. There's not much more I could do. Um, to, to influence the country as a whole. But now we have a world where because of these platforms, people who are like-minded and have extremely pernicious, uh, morally execrable, but also kind of far out, often lunatic, delusional views can find people who have exactly the same lunatic views anywhere in the world and in our country anywhere in the country. And so, if I mean, it doesn't at all make me happy 
that you know the people who were doing what they were doing on Parlor, um, you know whether they're it's I guess better that they're doing it on Parlor than on Facebook because the potential audience for it is much larger on Facebook. But that was that was a kind of incitement machine. There, they were a bunch of of lunatics whipping each other into a frenzy to overthrow the government and kill the vice president. In, in, like, public view of everybody and breaking it up, making it bigger, making it smaller, I think is just the wrong dimension to make sense of what to do about it. And I frankly don't have any good ideas about what to do well, about I, it. May, may I jump in with just one thought, which is that uh, the experts in this field do tend to stress that the algorithms of these websites are a big part of the problem. That is the Facebook algorithm that takes you progressively from one site, one relatively benign uh, group, to a more and more extreme one the longer you stay on the platform. That kind of thing can be regulated, it seems to me. I mean, that's a matter of just tracking how it works and, reg you know, and, and suggesting that if they're – their very own algorithms are drawing people into radicalism, that that can be uh, contained yeah. through regulation. Last point that I'll make on this is that I, I agree that that is a huge problem. It's a huge problem on YouTube. If you if you put in a right-wing uh, person or video on YouTube, it will start sending you only right-wing and progressively more and more extreme of the same right. thing. So that is a problem, and it points to how we've gotten here in part. The problem is that I fear we already have tens of millions of people who are already there. And like Parler wasn't doing what you described because every single person who was there was already as radical as they could get. Mm -hmm. And so um, what I'm more concerned about is not necessarily this this radicalization tendency, which I do think we should regulate and try to control if we can by changing the algorithms. But I'm equally or more concerned with the ability of the people who have already been radicalized by this stuff over the last 15 years to use it as a way of organizing, again, a kind of revolutionary movement in this country that can be incredibly dangerous in the real world. Uh, and that's what I see was was seeing happening on Parlor. Uh, so uh -huh. I'll I'll stop. Talking. And yeah, and Parlor has now been um, thankfully deplatformed itself. So um, uh, <coughs> AWS and others have said, nope, we're not, we're just not going to host it. So that's that's good for now. But um, that brings us to our third topic, and we've run a little long, so we're going to have to truncate this a bit. But um, but we do have tens of millions of people in this country who believe the lie about the election being stolen. We have tens of millions of people who are radicalized in variety in a variety of ways, many on the right, some on the left um, as well. Um, what do we make of the chances that poor Joe Biden, um, who is arguably the best possible person to, um, in some ways, the best possible figure to be taking office at a time like this, but, uh, but he is 78 and, um, and, and his task is gargantuan to, to try to, to tamp down these fires. Uh, Bill Galson, what, what do you think? Well, uh, there, there are better and worse routes for him to pursue, uh, but given the size of the task, he can't do it by himself. And to return to an earlier theme, the Democratic Party can't do it by itself. Uh, and I think the, I think what's really important is that reasonable people of both parties join hands and say that the moment that we reached is too dangerous just to do business as usual and to revert to the kinds of uh, – no-holds-barred legislative strategies that we have been using vis-a-vis -vis each other, really, uh, for the better part of two decades. Uh, we just can't afford this anymore. It's too dangerous. Uh, and so let's not load this all on Joe Biden. I've spoken many times about uh, the agenda I think he could pursue that would be most likely to pour oil on troubled waters. 
Uh, I'm not going to go into detail in the short time that we have right now, but there are some choices he has to make that would make a difference there. Uh, but I think that getting the responsible leaders of the Republican Party on board for a serious national bipartisan effort of de-escalation, cooling, and persuasion uh, is absolutely critical. Catherine, do you think that's possible? I, I agree with Bill that the burden should not be on Biden alone, or even not predominantly on Biden. Really, the, the hard work that has to be done has to be done by Republican leadership. They're the ones who, again, have sort of fed these collective delusions within what was once the fringe of the party and has now sort of taken over the party. And they need to be the ones to say, hey, we were wrong. It's time to work together. I mean, you hear a lot of calls lately from Republican politicians for, you know, now is the time for unity. Now is the time for harmony. They're calling for that from the Democrats, but they need to call for it among their own base. <laughs> um, you know, otherwise it's just unilateral disarmament where one side gets to, you know, show up with, with bombs and uh, gallows, which literally happened a week ago, and the other side just has to say, okay, let's have a big group hug. I think you really need Republicans um, showing good faith, working with Biden where there is common ground. And if there isn't common policy ground, just make it about that, not about demonizing and not about saying the election was stolen. Uh, you know, I, I think obviously there's a lot of work to be done by Biden himself as well. And, and I agree that, um, you know, he is uh, unusually qualified to serve as sort of that um, – you know, harmonizing figurehead. But I would have argued the same thing about Obama, <laughs> frankly. You know, Obama ran on a message of healing America and change we can believe in and we can work together. And the problem with running on a platform of working together is that it's very easy for your opposition to prove you a failure simply by not cooperating. Mm. And so we really need to have Republicans stepping up, so Republican leadership stepping up to the plate and saying, hey, guys, we, we misled you. Now's the time to make peace. And you need Democrats saying it on their side, too. But right now and, – and there is a lot of infighting within the Democratic Party, by the way, which we haven't even touched on, which I'm, I'm not even sure Biden can himself cool tensions there. But in any event, uh, I, I really think the burden needs to be largely upon Republican leadership at this point. JVL, it is amazing to watch uh, Republicans today at, during the debate um, over impeachment – um, standing up and saying, this is, this is bad. This is going to tear the country apart. This is bad for national unity. Um, what do you make of the argument that uh, – what do, you, what do you think is the likelihood, I should ask, that, um, that responsible Republican leaders will step forward and say, you know what, this has gone too far? And if we want to maintain civil peace and have – you know, and, and not destroy the country – we're going to have to turn down the temperature. We're going to have to admit error. What, what do you think the chances of that are? Well, it doesn't matter what the Republican leaders want. It matters what Republican voters want. And I think it's pretty clear that that is not what Republican voters want. Every single poll I've seen for two months has, has shown that somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of Republican voters think that Donald Trump won the election and Joe Biden is an illegitimate uh, authoritarian strongman. So what what is the policy remedy to that? I mean, Joe Biden could come out and say, I'm going to give a $10,000 check to every white, white high school educated male in Appalachia who's missing more than three teeth. And, uh, and are they going to say, oh, well, then that, that means that you are legitimate. Sure, I'll be – no, they're not going to go right. I mean, they view him literally as an authoritarian strongman, so you can't buy their cooperation. That's not how this works. I think that the – the near to medium term goal for the Democratic Party needs to be to peel off just enough Republican support to hold on to the White House and the House of Representatives for the next decade or so uh, and wait as demographic change, which if you sort of listen to Ron Brownstein and some of the other smart people who look at this, suggest that over the next 10 years, uh, the 
the Republican coalition as it exists now, where it is powered largely by uh, white men with less than a college education, uh, that group is going to continue to get smaller and smaller. But because of the geographic advantages given to uh, the Republican Party by our system, they are able to leverage what is a small and dwindling base into uh, a good deal of national power. And uh, they have shown that the Republican Party is a pro-authoritarianism party, and just as an objective fact. And so the good of America depends upon Democrats holding power for the next several cycles. And uh, I, I wish there were something better about that. I wish that I believed that there were Republican office holders who uh, believed in things like the greater good and the functioning of government and all that. But I, I just don't see any reason to, to believe that that is true. So what did you make of um, McConnell's actions today, if not a bid for better government and, and, and some, uh, some retribution for what Trump has done? What did you make of his action? The, the one where he leaked to Axios that he he was in favor of it and just might vote yeah. for it, or then yeah. the one where he said, no, "Hey, we're not going to hold a vote." The you first know, one, is, yeah, the first one is is meaningless, mm. right? This is this is what we've seen from Republicans since uh, I don't know the Axis Hollywood days, mm. right? Oh, it's terrible this thing, but uh, sure we're going to vote for him. Yeah, it's absolutely meaningless, and th the reason is because I you know, I don't. I think these guys are cowards, but uh, but they're not wrong because they understand what their voters want. Their voters want this. This stuff that you and I and the people on this podcast, Mona, uh, think of as a great tragedy, uh, Republican voters by and large agree with. And that is the root of all of this. This is not an elite problem. This is a cultural and a, a demographic and a voter problem. And, you know, we are here not by accident, but by something close to inevitability, because this is what our citizenry uh, demands, or at least a good 35 to 40 percent of it. So, Damon, um, 35 to 40 percent is not the people. Um, I've heard from a lot of people in the last week who, you know, having finally been hit over the, by the side of the head with a two-by-four, say, oh, you know what? You were right about Trump. <laughs> Um, sometimes, apparently, it takes this. Uh, but those are the kinds of voters, um, suburban, professional types, um, who very well might be in a position to keep Democrats in power in the House for the next several cycles if the Democrats play their cards right, right? Yeah, I mean – I, I, I always hesitate to extrapolate too much about the future from the present because things happen and change so quickly now. You know, the next election uh, facing us two years from now is like an eternity, and who knows what will happen between now and then. Um, I would say that at the moment, it, it, it's important to remember that when was Trump's lowest public approval? Uh, moment, and it was right around the time of the Charlottesville riots when he came out and talked about very fine people on both sides. What happened last week was sort of like the Charlottesville rally writ large at the nation's capital. I have no doubt that if the presidential election were held again today, Trump would lose massively more than he did. Uh, Biden would win by a large landslide far more than he in fact did because a lot of people hate this stuff. Um, the, the numbers really have moved in the last week in a positive way. The question is, what, what you have is a kind of rump of the Republican electorate that loves Trump and everything he does and loved everything he did and loves the worst of him so that the worse he is, the more they like him. Those are the people who showed up last week and and uh, and rioted and uh, attempted to, to do so much damage and did so much damage in the nation's capital. Think about it. These are people who bought plane tickets and flew to Washington to do this. Most of them were not locals. Um, that takes a lot of commitment. They care about this. Um, they really believe it. 
But those people aren't anywhere near enough to say win a House majority or a Senate majority or a presidency. If that's all the Republican Party is, they're going to lose in landslides and landslides in every direction for as far as the eye can see. The problem is that in our system, unlike in a parliamentary system where a coalition is formed after the vote, in our system, the coalition is formed before the vote in the party structure as a whole. And the Republican Party is this amalgam of these different groups. And the other non-Trumpy groups, most of them were all willing to just go along with it for the sake of their tax cuts or their regulation cuts or their abortion restrictions or whatever it was, or their hatred of liberals. Um, and you put all those pieces together with this crazy Trumpy chunk, which makes up maybe a third of or a half of the party who just love, again, these are the ones who not only approve of Trump, but love him the worse he is, the better. Um, the, the question really is, does that coalition stay together? Do those non-Trumpist factions in the party continue to hold their nose and keep going along with it for the sake of these other things they both love and loathe? Or... Um, do they start to drift away, just not show up on election day because they can't stomach that the party is just becoming more and more toxic? And that's the thing that will be decided over the next two and four years, and we can't answer yet. Okay. Um, we are now at the final segment, uh, and so I want to get to our highlights, things we want to draw attention to. Catherine Rampell, you go first. Sure. So the story that I was going to draw attention to is one from NPR that came out today reporting that the Trump sense that the Trump's Census Bureau has stopped trying to jam through this report on, on the unauthorized immigrant population, which was part of Trump's effort to exclude unauthorized immigrants from the official census enumeration. Um, I don't know if, if you all are familiar with this. Yes. Um, but in any event, there, there had been an IG report that came out in the last few days, maybe yesterday, I'm losing track of time, indicating that they were really trying to get this through before Trump left office. It's not clear if the career officials have sort of taken back control of the asylum from the inmates, and that's what happened, or if um, the, uh, polit the, the top political appointee, um, Dillingham, decided to, to quash this effort or, or what have you. But in any event, I think this is all interesting. Um, and in some sense, even if they don't ultimately put together this report on where all the where all the undocumented immigrants live and try to keep them from being counted for the purposes of, of apportionment and all of that, um, I do worry that the long-term um, effect that, that Trump and his various underlings were going for will have been achieved anyway, in that there were these efforts to um, depress responses in the decennial census from immigrants, both through this announcement about how, you know, about sort of tracking the populations of unauthorized immigrants for the purposes of uh, apportionment and enumeration, um, and the previous citizenship question um, that, had, that Trump had tried to add to the decennial census. Both of those efforts now seem to have failed or, or shortly will, will be dead. Um, but if they had the effect of depressing responses, the data will still be bad. Um, and the census data are used as the baseline for basically every other source of federal statistics that we have going forward. So I'm very concerned about the kind of corrosive effect on, you know, basically Trump's alternative facts will persist beyond him because right. the underlying data will be garbage, or if not garbage, will, will be... At least a little bit flawed, yeah. At, at least flawed, and that will have ripple effects through, you know, all sorts of statistics that the private sector uses, that the government uses when, when allocating, um, you know, funding, and, and every, you know, every survey that's ever conducted over the next 10 years. Um, so, anyway, it's kind of a in-the-weeds thing, but it's something that I'm worried about and that I, I hope gets more attention in the weeks and months ahead about how to fix some of the problems uh, of, the, of the, the data collected in 2020, right. also related to COVID. <laughs> there were also problems there, right. but some of them were deliberate. 
um, because okay. of these anti-immigrant efforts. Well, thank you. And uh, I know you have to jump off. So thank you so much. I'll thank you now for joining us. Appreciate it. Okay, Bill Galston. Uh, well, I'm going to overperform today and offer something bad and something good to highlight. First, the bad. Uh, and I know I'm sounding like a broken record, but I really care about this. Michael Pack's war against the free press continues. Uh, the latest episode was uh, yanking a VOA reporter off, uh, off the beat uh, for daring to ask Secretary Pompeo a question. Uh, it, I'm not sure I understand how a reporter can do his or her job without asking public officials questions. Uh, and I invite interested listeners to review the questions for themselves to see if they went beyond the bounds of propriety. Uh, in my judgment, as you may have guessed, they did not. Now for something good. Uh, we have lots of law schools in this country producing lots of lawyers. Uh, that has some downsides for the country. One of the upsides is that we have smart law professors uh, examining virtually every question, including every constitutional question. And an Indiana University law professor by the name of Gerard Magliocca has recently completed a 67-page paper on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, and here's what he has to say. You know, he, he said, this is a paraphrase, a majority vote in Congress would express lawmakers' opinion that Section 3 applies in a specific case to a specific individual. The courts would then have to make that legal determination Quote, it is not just something that Congress can do, he said in an interview. Now, no doubt there will be other views surfacing in the next 24 hours as to the meaning and application of Section 3, uh, but nobody should imagine that it will be less complicated or controversial uh, than, uh, than the impeachment and removal route. Right. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Damon. Um, well, I've uh, pointed to uh, the writings before uh, by a guy named Ivan Krastev, who's um, a Bulgarian intellectual, spends a lot of time, a lot of his time in Vienna, where he runs a think tank. I think he's one of the shrewdest analysts of uh, global politics uh, around right now. He had an op-ed in the New York Times uh, earlier this week titled, Trump Has Made America a Laughingstock. Uh, and I, I include this uh, in the interest of keeping our eyes on the broadest possible perspective, though we're naturally and understandably focused on domestic issues right now. We need to keep in mind the, the wider world. I'll just read a couple sentences from this to give people a flavor of what he's saying here. The storming of the Capitol and the growing prospects of Mr. Trump's impeachment in his last hours in power have showcased not simply a crisis of American democracy, but a crisis of American power. Next to him, Washington's monumental failure to respond to the coronavirus pandemic, Washington law enforcement's inexplicable failure to prevent protesters from invading the Capitol makes America look dysfunctional and weak to its enemies and unreliable to its allies. It didn't help that this occurred just weeks after the humiliation of America's cybersecurity defenses in the case of Russia's hacking of at least 10 federal agencies. So, again, uh, for the sake of uh, the big picture, uh, I offered that and very much um, uh, uh, recommend it to our listeners to take a read and to put Krastev on your, uh, your list of important people to keep tabs on. He's very smart. Thank you. Uh, it reminds me of something that someone posted on Twitter, which was a picture of Trump's face superimposed on uh, the, the body of that guy who showed up at the Capitol in furs with his face painted and the helmet and the whole getup. And it said, you know, the way the, the world sees the United States today. Um, the Animal so. House push. Yeah, yeah. Okay, JVL. Uh, there's a writer, Mike Giglio, who uh, is a war correspondent who spent the last year 
uh, embedded with various militia movements in the U.S. Uh, and writing about it. And his stuff has been great. He published a piece over the weekend at The Intercept where he went talking to his militia sources and asking them about their reactions to what happened uh, on January 6th. And the picture which emerges is that this is not a one-off. This is not, you know, the, people think that, oh, well, the insurrection is over, and it's not over. Uh, we have a rally scheduled for January 17th in the U.S., and then there is uh, January 20th, Inauguration Day. One of the fellows uh, Mike talked with is a guy named Justin Thayer, who leads a militia in Georgia. He is mainstream enough that he was a volunteer for Kelly Loeffler's campaign. Uh, and when Mike spoke to Mr. Thayer, Mr. Thayer said that what was next for them was to pray and prepare for the 20th, uh, the 20th of January, and that he and his militia planned to be in Washington, D.C. And, uh, and I just want to read to you what he told Mike, Mike Giglio at The Intercept. When we actually get involved, we're going to kill Democrats, liberals, and communists at a rate that will defy anything that's occurred in history. And when that happens, we're going to make sure that it's done so thoroughly that we don't ever have to have this argument again. It's going to be so ugly and ruthless. We're going to go to the homes of the tank operators and kill their wives and children and nail them to the walls. This is America. People think that this is, you know, oh, it's just a couple guys. It's not just a couple guys. Uh, it's, it's a lot of guys. And uh, we are in this fight against authoritarianism for the long haul. Uh, Trump, Donald well, Trump I, has lit a fire that you know, will not be extinguished for several years. Okay. I, I agree that this is something we need to be very worried about. I don't agree with your saying this is America. I think that's a little bit too far. But uh, it's certainly part of America and a bigger part than and we realize I would agree that far. All right. I would like to draw attention to something that was published in the New York Times Magazine by the historian Timothy Snyder. Uh, it's called The American Abyss, and uh, it's full of interesting insights, not all of which I agreed with, but many of which I did. He's a historian of fascism. And, um, and one of the things, I mean, there were a number of, in addition to it's really, really thorough um, analysis of where we've come to in America. It, he had a couple of great one-liners. Um, one of them was, post-truth is pre-fascism. <clears throat> and uh, another was um, describing people like Hawley and Cruz. He said, just because you've sold your soul to the devil doesn't mean that you drove a hard bargain. And... Uh, <laughs> It's, uh, it's, it's well worth your time. Again, it's Timothy Snyder, The American Abyss. Um, and on that gloomy note, uh, let us uh, hope that the coming week isn't as desperately bad as we fear. And um, we will gather again next week to discuss the inauguration of Joseph Robinette Biden. And we hope only that. All right. Thank you one and all. And we'll be back next week as every week. 